Welcome to Sports with Friends. My name is Seth Everett. Thank you so much for tuning in to this podcast. Feedback has been great. I hope people, at least in the U.S., had a very safe and fun Halloween. I spent most of mine putting this fun podcast together, so I had a blast. Today on the show, I have the honor of interviewing one of the greatest interviewers in sports broadcasting history. From 1980 to 1994, he hosted Up Close, originally called Sports Look. He was part of ESPN's first season of Sunday Night Football. He's appeared on The Late Show with David Letterman, Larry King Live, Nightline, and much, much more. In Los Angeles, he regularly appears on Good Day LA. He's interviewed icons, Muhammad Ali, Michael Jordan, all sports. He was in the film Jerry Maguire playing Roy Firestone, not so much of a stretch. When I found out just how many amazing people Roy Firestone has interviewed, I was humbled because I thought this podcast has some amazing guests. And I found out through the magic of social media, he listened to me on the radio. So I welcomed him to Sports with Friends. Roy Firestone. And there's nothing we don't cover. We cover the positives, of which there are so many. We also questioned some of his choices in the interview process. O.J. Simpson, Richard Nixon. He has answers for all of it. A fantastic conversation with a guy who knows how to tell a story. It is also week nine in the NFL. And when I say there are some pretty intriguing matchups, including that Germany game, the Philadelphia Eagles and the Miami Dolphins, we're going to talk to Patrick Morrow, the head odds maker at BovadaSportsBook.com to preview the latest odds on those games. Roy, it is great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for doing this. I wanted to start this conversation this way. I looked at your show as an intimate conversation. Yep. It was it was a kind of original podcast actually. That's and that's where I'm going. I it feels like when I started getting into the world of podcasting it mm-hmm. feels like that's the intimacy is what I'm trying to recreate that that what this podcast has become is an ability to feel comfortable enough with your guests that you can almost ask anything. Absolutely. And you know what's funny? It, it, you know, I did this show for parts of t- three different decades. Uh, and if you really want to go way back, I had another show before that. So it goes almost co- covers four decades. But I always felt I was never an expert about sports, but I was interested in people and their stories and whatever was their passion. And I took some flack early on in my career for just stick with the game. Nobody wants to hear about someone's father. No one wants to hear about losing a, a child. No one, all these things, some of it not nearly as heavy as that too, by the way, some fun and light stuff. You know, we've had people like, you know, Wynton Marsalis did the show. We had uh, Richard Nixon did our show. We had Madonna talking. We, we, I always was interested in the people. I was not as interested in the games. I love sports. I made my career in sports. I enjoyed doing it. But man, if I only had to talk about the Bengals this week against, you know, the 49ers, right. it, it didn't resonate for me. It wasn't interesting to me, Seth. So, and the other part, of course, the equation was I became known as the guy who makes him cry, which was such nonsense <laughs> because we actually tabulated this once. 
I did 5,000 shows, closer to six now, 6,000, because I'm still doing stuff. And I think we had 20 people cry out of 6,000 people. But that's what people remembered. Of course. And Rodman crying and, and people, Magic Johnson crying, Barry Bonds crying. But they all a, a, attached the whole teary thing with me, which in my view, I'm okay with it because Jerry Maguire was a big part of my career. Sure, sure. But but it was I wasn't a one note guy, and I, I, I it's fine with me. <laughs> whatever people want to say, but I wasn't the guy who made them cry. Only <laughs> I like to think there were there were moments in my show of human emotion, reality, um, candor, but the idea. That all I did was, quote, make him cry. I have to tell you a very quick story, if I could. After I did Jerry Maguire, by the way, I had never met Cuba Gooding Jr. in my life. I didn't know who he was. And when I went to shoot the movie at Sony, the guy who opened the studio door for me literally was Tom Cruise. He just mm -hmm. literally opened the door. And I, I was stunned because he was a big star even then. He says, have you met Cuba yet? I said, well, I lived in Miami. I grew up in Miami. He goes, what? <laughs> and I, I thought he was talking, have you been to Cuba? Been yet? to Cuba. <laughs> right? So we did and at this. at the time, you couldn't go to Cuba. <laughs> right. And we did the scene in the movie. And we did two takes. Most of it ad-libbed. My line was, the tra a, a tra a, your, your brother lost a leg in a, tra a tragic bass fishing accident. That was my ad-lib line. And oh. if you look at the movie now... You can even see Cuba starting to crack up. They left oh. it. <laughs> in. And he, we did two takes. The I have to watch take, it again with that context. Yeah, you got to look very carefully. His his face starts to, for a second, he starts to go. But we, we, had, we had a lot of fun. I got to meet him. Obviously, the movie wins the Academy Award. But in that scene, as you remember, he grabs me across the table and hugs me at the end of the scene. Yeah. And the first take, I wasn't ready for it. And we were on rollers, uh, chair rollers. Oh, on oh the chairs with wheels. By the way, they uh, Sony rebuilt our set. That was not our ESPN set. ESPN, oh. in their brilliance, refused to let them use our set. Don't ask me why. Wow. But he grabbed me. That and cost thousands of dollars, that decision. Yeah. I He grabbed me, and the chair started to roll off a roller, and I started falling back almost on my head. It was such a shock. <laughs> Two grips caught me, and then, God, I mean, who knows? I could have had a concussion or something. I was going to fall back on my head. Second takes what we use. But here's here's where the, the, cr the crying thing comes. Everybody now in every airport, every gar garbage truck, every uh, filling station, every ed library, any coffee shop comes up to me every day of my life and says, don't make me cry, Roy. Okay, which is fine. It's great to be identified with that. But here's the great part of the story. About, about 18 months later, I was in Liverpool, England at a reception. Okay. And I was with a friend. It was a rock and roll. I'm a big Beatles person. Okay. It was a rock and roll show that I'm Did you ever going... interview a Beatle? Uh, well, we're getting to that. Here. Oh, okay. Okay. So uh, we go to a reception I was told that there may be some famous people coming to this reception. It was a rock and roll thing. And I, it was two o'clock in the morning. We had just been there. My friend and I went. I was invited. I was thrilled. I had never been to Liverpool before. And 
I we, I said, you know, it's it's t- it's two o'clock in the morning. I'm jet lag. Let's go home. And my friend Michael goes, oh, my God, look behind you. I turn around. It was Paul McCartney. Uh, Paul McCartney is the closest thing to a mythical, almost a godlike figure to me, as he is to millions of people. Sure. It's the only time my knees buckled, I think, in my career, in my life, for to see a celebrity. He looks at me for a second. And he says, I think I know you. I said, I don't think you know me, Paul, but I sure know you. <laughs> no, I really do. I know who you are. I said, I, I don't think so. And then finally, I realized the, the woman that was, you know, the publicist that was next to him points and she says, he, Paul means the movie. I said, the movie? And I went, you mean Jerry, Jerry McGuire? <laughs> and he goes, yeah, you're the guy who makes him cry. <laughs> what's, your, what's your name i said my name is roy he goes don't make me cry roy <laughs> now that was probably one of the great moments of my life my third book is called don't make me cry roy and it has become almost a catchphrase in my life in my career everybody who's ever known me assumes that's all i ever did was make guests cry as i said Maybe, I think it was 18 people cried out of 6,000 interviews. But, and the irony, Seth, is this. These days, with things being viral as they are, that would be the number one clip from every show. Who, who got to cry on Roy's show? Right. And I think in long-winded answer to your original question, what I did is afford people a place of safety, of comfort, to where they revealed something of themselves that was truly real. <laughs> I don't know that we have a lot of vehicles like that these days. It's a lot of pushing and cajoling and, and trying to out, out out talk somebody now. And I think my show was unique and still, I, I say that I hope with some humility, but unique to the fact that there's nothing really like it out there now in sports. There's a lot of shouting and yelling and you know, and and posturing, and, and I think we're I think we're a little bit cheaper for it in the sports world now. Not that it has to be me, because I had a, a great run of seven several thousand shows at ESPN, but I like the fact that people felt safe on my show, comfortable show. And while I still do to ask tough questions, but I feel that people revealed something of themselves gave of themselves willingly not because they, they were ambushed more of this fantastic conversation with roy firestone in just a moment but first let's take a look at the week in football nfl week nine is impressive great matchups let's welcome in the head odds maker at bovada patrick morrow to break them all down Let's start it in Germany, Frankfurt, Germany, for the Miami Dolphins and the Kansas City Chiefs. The NFL couldn't have lucked out. They're exposing another country, another aspect of this international method for them, and they're getting a gem of a game, Miami, Kansas City. Ian Seth, uh, what a game Germany is getting this week as uh, the Dolphins and Chiefs Chiefs suit up in Frankfurt. Uh, you know, the London games, we're, we're used to them by now. They're 2-3 every year, but we don't get these kind of matchups in London. You get the Jaguars, you get the Falcons, you get the Titans. Usually you get a lot of teams that are, are, are pretty okay with their, their home clubs uh, losing them for a week to London, but not in Germany. And boy, are they getting a good one. Uh, the Chiefs come into this one as 
ever so slight two and a half point favorites right now. And uh, the early money is uh, currently coming in on the Miami Dolphins uh, money line and point spread so far. Uh, no surprise as well that this one will have the largest betting total at the week at Bavada. I can't believe it's this early in the morning. I've got to run a half marathon on Sunday, but I'm going to be checking uh, my phone for the updates on this one. So after that, the early window, the Seattle Seahawks travel to Baltimore to take on the Ravens. Great interconference game. The Seahawks coming away. They're playing their best football, but then again, so is Baltimore. Seth, Baltimore is looking really, really strong on both sides of the ball. Not only that, what we're seeing from Lamar Jackson this year, uh, throwing the ball uh, as well as he has consistently, he has not had to rely on his legs to uh, you know, make up the yards down the field, to scramble, to improvise as much. He has looked the comfiest in the pocket that I think I've seen in his career. The Baltimore defense is looking good. Special teams, obviously never a problem there. But how about the Seattle Seahawks and what Geno Smith and Pete Carroll are doing with that team? Coming into this game, they are only five and a half point uh, underdogs in this one, uh, which is kind of surprising uh, based on how well Baltimore has played this year. It really does speak that uh, Seattle is hanging with the teams this year. Looking at uh, you know the action uh, disparity, it's actually pretty split at 50-50 on this one. Over under is also sitting at 43 right now at Bavada. And then the late window, the Cowboys, who have, when they win, they blow teams out. The Eagles have been sneaking away, but they're 7 and 1 and unbeaten at home. Cowboys Eagles is another great matchup. Yeah, Seth, this is, uh, this is really, really good. This is really, really tight. And I, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head a little bit and how the Cowboys win games uh they win with their talent and they they blow you out and they can blow out a lot of great teams and they are good when that's all they need to do uh what worries me is their ability to do well in tight games and i think this is where coaching comes into uh, the equation here and i think mike mccarthy he's a great x's nose coach he's a very good prep during the week coach i think when it comes to the day of the game itself he frequently finds himself outmatched so if I were to uh, rank these two teams up, I think Dallas, you give them the skill edge. Eagles, you give them the coaching edge. Give them a little bit of home field advantage in this one as well. And you've got your classic three-point favorite. That's what the Eagles are sitting at right now. Over-under is sitting at 46. It's the second highest over-under at Bavada this week. But uh, yeah, NFC East, uh, not just bragging rights, but playoff positioning on the line right here. I know we preview games every week here on Sports with Friends, but I'm telling you this. These matchups impress me so much. I will be spending all day Sunday watching NFL football, and Monday, I'm going to the Chargers-Jets game. Now, let's go back to the conversation with the outstanding Roy Firestone. Did you have creative control? Not necessarily that it's, you had the final say, but... Did you have a synergy yeah. with the producers that you worked with? If you ask a question, for example, mm-hmm. and it might be a fair question, but his answer stinks. Do you have the trust that between you and the producer, you will establish something where you can say, well, that's not going to be it. That, that I know in this podcast, for example, the listener mm-hmm. is not going to hear something that makes you or me look bad. Right. That's that's the way these these things go. And I'm a meticulous editor. I, I, I take great detail to making sure everybody 
feels comfortable Be- right. because I know that I feel like I can push. Yeah. I feel well, like but- I can push you and I can try something because if it doesn't work out, the audience is never going to know. Did well, first have- of all, I never, I, first of all, I never, ed- we never edited one show, not one ever. You never, you never would never say edited, the no, third not- question to what Howard Johnson. Saw, take it what out. you saw, what you saw on that show is what we asked. And here's a couple of other little interesting, wow. couple of interesting tidbits. Uh, obviously, I didn't have the, the the benefit of internet the research. When now there's 1,500 articles you can get and spend all day, and within 20 minutes you have your all the data you need. Um, I had to go to libraries. I literally went to libraries and went to see what they used to call the stacks. I don't know if you remember the term, yeah, the stacks. Sure. It was a research area Hard catalog. Guard Cadillac, Dewey Decimal, the whole number. So if Eddie Matthews, the baseball player, was coming on and I wanted to know what happened in 1955, I couldn't look it up on the internet in those days. I'd go to the library and I'd research old sporting news and sport magazines and inside sports and all of those, Sports Illustrated, obviously, all of those that helped give me the data. But I did it literally by hand and it was cumbersome and laborious, but laborious, or it was also part of my ethic that I liked. It's almost too easy now to Google something. In a way, a lot of stuff that's Googled is false. You could go do a show. It says, well, Bob, it says here on the internet that your first wife, that's not true, Roy. I've been trying to tell. There are a lot of lies on the internet now. I had to go find the truth. And we never edited a show. I, I I booked every guest. In some cases, we would. You booked them. You did not have a booker. We had we had an assistant that helped me, but I booked them on the phone. I'd get on the phone and I'd talk people. I mean, to get, even in his day, to get Michael Jordan to come in to a studio to do an interview that was on ESPN was unheard of. And Jordan. Let me, let, hold on. Let me put a pin in that. Yep. Was, what was harder? Getting the guy? Or coming up with the idea to get the guy. Oh, well, they were both hard. But getting the guy, if he was, a, you know, there were certain people who refused to do it. But then suddenly they'd see their friends on there. You know, when when Isaiah Thomas was on uh, and said something about Jordan, Jordan wanted to come back on and set the record straight and then this yeah. thing and that, or give his point of view. So it became a kind of momentum, Seth, where I would, create my own energy with my guests and other people want to come on. I mean, Will Chamberlain famously at the time did not do a lot of interviews, sure. not in long form anyway. He couldn't wait to come on our show. He had stuff that he wanted to tell us about. Bill Russell never did it, never did the show, didn't want to do the show. Uh, I but, think you asked, a- but you asked. Yeah, asked. we asked many times. Okay. I'll tell you another one, <laughs> Joe DiMaggio. I did do a couple of short interviews with Joe was not comfortable. He was not comfortable with a microphone in front of him. And I was in line at the Super Bowl media uh, uh, office one day and right behind me is Joe DiMaggio. And he looks at me and he goes, Roy Firestone. That's how he talked. Roy Firestone. I'm Joe DiMaggio. I said, yes, Mr. DiMaggio. I know. I saw the show the other night with Dominic, my brother. Oh, did you enjoy it? I enjoyed it very much. And I shall not appear on your program. <laughs> That's how he talked. He talked like that. <laughs> Joe DiMaggio was 
you know, kind of the J.D. Salinger of interviews. He just didn't do a lot or anything. He was uncomfortable with, I think he was uncomfortable generally, publicly. He was a shy person. But there were a few that didn't do it. Bill Russell was one. Joe DiMaggio did a little bit, but he didn't do the whole show. And as long as you kept it about baseball, not Marilyn Monroe, oh my God, don't you dare. We, we got pretty much everybody we wanted. But in answer to your question, it was the idea of getting them that was tough, but delivering was tougher. I got to tell you one more quick story that you'll get a kick out of. Be my guess. Remember the Michigan um, game against North Carolina with Chris Weber and the, the timeout? That oh, the wasn't timeout that they didn't have. At the Superdome. Okay. This is, this is going to take about two minutes, but it's a very funny story. But it also tells you about my determination. I had worked out something with Dean Smith at North Carolina that if somehow they would win the game, could he do a 25-minute interview upstairs uh, in the Superdome? And he agreed. And he was also a shy guy who didn't do a lot of TV interviews. So, of course, it was the controversial win. North Carolina wins because Chris Weber called the timeout that wasn't. They got a technical foul. Game over. Okay. He does the press conference. Dean Smith sees me in the press room and he winks at me like, I'm, I know you're here. We'll do it. He thought we were going to be four, 40 feet away in another room, camera crew. And we were originally, but the camera crews were denied that, that room. And we had to go to the 15th floor or not, not the 15th, the fifth floor, I should say, at the Superdome. Okay. So there's Dean Smith. They win this dramatic game, national title. It's like 12 midnight now. And he says, where are you set up, Roy? I said, uh, we're on the fifth floor. The fifth floor? I thought we were going to do it next door. I said, coach, can you bear with it, please? All right, we'll just take the elevator. We press the door of the elevator. The elevator's turned off. <laughs> so here's Dean Smith and I having to walk whatever flights of flights stairs, stairs. <laughs> not just not just five flights but it was like double so it was like 10 flights of stairs because it was a, a lot of helix type of staircase now dean was a four pack a day cigarette smoker he's out of breath after the first step four steps he goes roy i'm gonna tell you right now my team just won the national title i gotta get back to the i said coach i really need this so we're walking up these flights and he's starting to curse me God damn it, Roy. I just, you told me that we're going to be doing this thing right next. I said, I never said next door. And now I'm trying to keep him, you know, amused as we walk up to the steps to the top of the, of the, of the, the Superdome in a little room that was some kind of broom closet where we had to do the show. And he goes, Roy, I'm going to set my watch right now. You got five minutes starting now. Go. Now we did the interview and he was great. And he was, you couldn't tell he was pissed off at me, right. but the interview is over. Then we got to go back. And now we're hoping the elevator is working. No, it's still shut. Now he has to go down from 10 flights. So we got to go down the steps. We go out of the, to, to the exit of the Superdome. The doors are all locked. So it's Dean Smith and me. Now it's quarter to one in the morning. They just won the national. They're shutting the lights off at the Superdome. This is my determination to get the damn story. <laughs> it was one of the best rated shows we ever had because it was after the controversy with Chris Weber. Sure. But he never, <laughs> Dean said, don't you ever ask me to do this again. Nothing against <laughs> you, Roy, but there's no way I'm doing this ever again. That was <laughs> So it just shows you the determination. 
I would have to pull guests sometimes the night before a show because we didn't have one. I'd go to the forum in Los Angeles and pull Elliot Gould out of a crowd to do do my show or you know, was that a, was uh, that a great stress? People say to me, "What's the biggest stress about sports with friends?" Is I don't know who's on next week. Well, if, like if I do it was, know, it's it a relaxation. Pressure. I'll tell you what, Seth. It was a pressure to come up with quality guests. You know, you could always get somebody would want it. You some writer, somebody had a book, right. but quality five star guests were were pressure because ESPN wanted it, we wanted it, and we got it mostly. You know, I could say that my show up close and before that even show that called sports look that was a different name but it was the same show had more five-star guests than any sports show in history if you notice really there's not a lot of sports talk shows on tv now um that that really do in-depth stuff that really have uh the kind of appeal that we had on a daily basis. we were on every single day uh at six o'clock and um, I'm proud of that. I'm proud of the fact that we delivered. You know, we had some crummy guests. I remember one time, this is before my show. What defines a crummy guest? Well, I'll give you an example. Because like, I'll have guests who are not well known, but I love having them. Because oh, sure. they told a cool story or something. Oh. What's a crummy guest to you? Inarticulate and, and, okay. and not, thought, not thoughtful. Houston McTeer, I don't know if that name means anything. He was a sprinter, set the world record in the late 70s, early 80s. A little bit he before you perhaps but it was it was a big deal to get this young kid who was 21 years old to, to talk and about and he didn't say anything i i remember i was on live tv in miami and i had to fill five minutes or four minutes on the local news and i said what is it like for a young kid who came from pensacola california florida i should say uh who sets the world record in the sprints it must be a, a, a thrill for you and a, a cornerstone of your career. Long pause. As long as I'm giving to you now, it's dead air. And finally he goes, well, uh, I don't know, you know. That was the entire <laughs> interview. And I said, and I tried to do a follow-up question. And the next question was, I don't know, you know. Yeah. And then the third question was, I don't know, you know. And <laughs> The next day I went back into the studio and everybody had a t-shirt that said in the front, I don't know. And in the back it said, you know, <laughs> so listen, nothing against Houston McCary. I think he's passed away many years ago, but it, the answer to your question is what makes a good guest is somebody who has something to say, something to say, something to say, and some passion behind it. You know, Nick Johnson, Nick Johnson, the, the old first baseman of the Yankees. He yeah, was a brutal interview. Nice guy. Yeah. Nice, friendly person, you know, yeah. no, no issue. Could not put three words together. Kyle Farnsworth was another. Kyle Farnsworth was the dumbest player I'd ever interviewed. I, I couldn't get over. I he had no ideas you know, and no I, opinions about anything. There, That's Seth, not the podcast. That's way before the podcast. But there's there's a difference though between inarticulate and dumb, um, or had or have. They're they're articulate, but they still say nothing. Right, right. Now, well, that, that's Garvey, the cliche. Mr. Garvey cliche. was never Steve Garvey was never a great interview because he said nothing, but he said it in an articulate way. Right. If that makes sense. Um, <laughs> I always thought, you know, people always ask me who were who were the top five. You know, everyone loves the lists. Wilt would be high up there. Barkley, of course. It's almost like stealing to interview Charles Barkley because he just takes over. 
But man, are you, was are dumb. you are you surprised at all at how adept he has become, and how oh, how it, comfortable he feels to say whatever he wants at any moment on live television? He's lightning fast in everything he any answer. He's really smart, right? He is really smart, but he's also completely fearless. I remember interviewing him and Olajuwon in Houston once. And I said, here's an offbeat question for both of you, because Hakeem, you're very religious. Do you believe you're going to heaven? I don't know why I threw that one out to start <laughs> the interview. Olajuwon goes, you know, you have these voices that like this. Well, if my service to Allah and is pure and consistent and comes in the, my soul and my, my spirit of giving for all of mankind, I believe that Allah and I will be in heaven. Thank you very much. So I said, how about you, Charles? Are you going to heaven? He goes, I don't know, but it's going to be a close vote. <laughs> now, that's Barkley at his best. Barkley <laughs> always gave you something lightning fast, yep. usually funny, sometimes just brutally candid, and he was a natural. He was a guy who was unafraid to say what was on his mind. He was he, the gift. The other, the other year, he said he said that he was watching the hockey playoffs, that the basketball playoffs have been boring and the hockey playoffs have been great. And Imagine. he's been watching hockey and he's on the NBA broadcast. Right. I and, couldn't believe it. And you know what? Here's what's funny, Seth. He, only he could get away with it. That's nobody, right. nobody probably was even angry. They probably were amused by the whole thing. But anyway, the guy that I thought was the most fascinating uh, in terms of interview, candor, storytelling, a uh, life well lived was Ted Williams. Oh my God. That oh, guy, wow. I did every time I interviewed him, I kept pinching myself saying, My God, what a blessing this is, my career to interview somebody like this. Not just a, the greatest hitter, probably since the, maybe the 30s. Um, that's not what Arguably. made him a great guest. What you said earlier is having something was, to say, and he had he something to stunning, say. I remember watching you with Ted Williams. Stunningly candid, had a life lived. He was a war hero twice in two different wars, shot down, crash landed. I mean, it was like something you couldn't even write in, in, in a book or, I mean, people tried. But he was John Wayne for real, and he... Didn't care what you thought of his opinions. He just gave them. And I've interviewed him before he had his stroke and after he had a stroke. And he was still sharp after his two strokes he had. But Ted would be way up high on my list as somebody who never failed. He just never failed to deliver. And I, I, there's, there used to be a phrase called he came to play. You know, it was back in the, I guess, 70s. When people say, you know, Larry Bird, boy, he just comes to play. No, Larry Bird came to win. He didn't come to play. But when somebody does an interview, they have to come to play. They have to come to want to talk, not because they feel they have to do it. Yeah. And I've had a lot of athletes who didn't want to do it. Sometimes they came into fabulous interviews. And this guy named Vernon Maxwell, not the basketball Vernon Maxwell. There was another one, a football Vernon Maxwell, played for the Colts. Um and he came on the show. He was so terrified he, he to, to do an interview. He started sweating, dripping from his chin. I could see the sweat. And I said, we're going to stop the cameras, and I want to find out why you're so uncomfortable. And we were rolling the cameras. And he says, I feel in control when I'm on the field. 
I don't feel in control when I'm in the studio being interviewed, talking about myself. I, I said, why do you think that is? He goes into 20 minutes of some of the most reflective stuff. I grew up in a bad, and I, we finished. I said, Vernon, we're going to use that interview. Because what interview? I said, what we just did. He goes, you're kidding. I said, you were so relaxed and so candid and right, so honest. Lester Hayes did the same thing too. The, the defensive back for the Raiders. The Raiders. He didn't yep. know. He didn't know we were rolling, and that is the secret: is to make people feel comfortable or at ease enough to reveal something of themselves. Um, I don't want to get uh, super political, but you talked to Nixon. Oh uh, yeah. Oh boy. To, but 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 I only saw that on clips. So put put it in context. Uh, this is after he resigned. Yes. And by, by the way, he only, I think he told me he had only done four long form interviews since he had resigned. And I was one of them. And it was a sports show. That's wild. But predominantly uh, sports show. This is not politics. Like this, I said, this... I never, I never saw, I never saw it live. I never saw it live. I was, uh, oh, I got a great, I have a great story. But I, but I want to ask, tell me Richard Nixon, after he resigns, comes yeah. and does up close. He does up close because he had some kind of uh, anniversary of the baseball or something. And he was a massive baseball fan, maybe more so than, than even, I think he loved baseball more than politics actually. And my family hated Nixon. I hated Nixon because I grew up in that era. Yep. I was, uh, you know, like a lot of kids in my generation, anti-Nixon. But we come to the studio and it's a Yorba Linda at his museum at his library. And he came up to me, he goes, you know, Roy, I watch your show every night. And he says, I've always enjoyed the show with your dad. You have your dad on every Father's Day. Would you tell your dad uh, how much I enjoy watching <laughs> the show? And you're like, how much, no. <laughs> now, now I'm absolutely melting with, with oh my God, He's just like my one of my father's friends now. Yeah. It's not even Nixon anymore. So I call, I go to a payphone after the show is over. And I said, Pop, you're not going to believe it. I just interviewed Richard Nixon. My father starts going off. That son of a bitch. He, <laughs> he should be in jail. He's He was a criminal. He's a thug, an anti-Semite. He's a this, a that. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah dad. Let me finish, though. What? He said he saw the show that you did with me and he watches it every year and he thinks it's one of our best shows and he wanted you to know how much he enjoyed you coming on the show. Long pause. My father goes, well, you know, he did do some great things. He went to China. He went to Russia. He's one of the great presidents we've ever... That was my father. It was always about if you complimented my dad, <laughs> didn't matter if it was Charles Manson, my father liked you. I'll tell you one. I'll tell you one story real quick. Uh, I met uh, George W. Bush, the second. Bush. Oh, good guy. Good guy uh, to talk. Very to. good guy. Uh, he was at the it was at the stadium opening for the Nationals, the brand new uh -huh. stadium for the Nationals. Uh -huh. Right. He shows up because Hal Bodley, another person, you know, Hal Bodley That's knew him good. from his days owning the Texas Rangers. And he walks in and. Uh, you know, I, I didn't vote for him. That was one of the first elections I voted in. Right. Uh, I wasn't a fan, but he, here he was, and he couldn't have been nicer. Yeah, he, we he he walks in and he looks around the room, and he's we're like in a semicircle, 
And he says, so all you folks, uh, you work for Major League Baseball? And we're like, yeah. And he says, so that cheapskate Bud Selig signs your checks? And I said, <laughs> yeah. And I don't know why he looked at me. I, I, I wasn't the interviewer, how Bodley was. But he looks at me and he goes, do they pay you a lot? <laughs> and I go, and I said, I said, well, Mr. President, because he was the president at the time. Like this, yeah. he, he's in office at this moment. And I said, actually, Mr. President, that's something we'd love to talk to you about. <laughs> oh, that's hysterical. That's my Bush no, story. Enjoyed- and we took a picture with him and the yeah. White House sent us pictures like to MLB, like eight copies of this picture. And yeah. it's all signed. And I have a picture of George Bush in my office because I, it's I, something I'll never, ever. It was a sitting president of the United States. I loved it. And it didn't matter. I, and there are people who, if they see it, they go, Bush, why is Bush in your office? And I'm like, that's not the point. He was great. Uh, yeah. Great. You know, that's the that's the thing. Even uh, I, I, I interviewed Bush, too, when he was president of the Rangers. Yep. But. He really knew his baseball. He gave me a tour of the old Arlington Stadium the first day. Yeah, sure. And he was comparing this like Tiger Stadium. You know how Tiger Stadium, there's that in. He would talk about all the little nooks and crannies of ballparks. And he knew his baseball. And he, you see him. He's at the playoff. As, as we speak, I don't know when this is going to run. World Series now. He's been there throughout the playoffs. He's a real baseball fan. But let me tell you one more thing about Nixon. <clears throat> when we did the interview, I was convinced it was going to be a tough interview. It was one of the easiest interviews I ever did. And he started talking about players. He goes, I know that you're a Brooks Robinson guy. I said, yes, sir. I was the bat boy for the Orioles when I was 15. He goes, well, you know, I always liked Brooksy, but my personal favorite was Schmitty. And he would start talking about guys like, you know, how now these days we, well, the Padres used to have, well, Gwynny and Brownie and Cammy, everyone was Cammy and Grimmy. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. had a Y in their name. And he Nixon's talking about these guys with the Y. Bruxy. I always enjoyed Bruxy, watching Bruxy. And he he always he he was he he was so happy he was in a happy place talking baseball. So we're ready to interview the uh, end the interview. And this is the, the payoff to this story. And <laughs> I'm so comfortable. Stories have been fantastic. I I'm so comfortable with this interview, and I really I have to say, I kind of liked him just on the basis of the baseball conversation. Right. right. It was You've Nixon, had a common bond, who had some horrible things spying on citizens and anti-Semitism and you name it. I said towards the end, I said, you know, Mr. President, I I almost re- I'm almost reluctant to say this. But in 1972, at the Republican National Convention in Miami, where I grew up, Miami Beach, um, my friend Bob Sanders and I threw a rock at your limousine. <laughs> why would I say that? I don't know why. You I said. told him that. <laughs> right. Nixon, because he was so comfortable and so at ease. And I could see the Secret Service guys stiffening up looking oh around. <laughs> Nixon looks at me and he goes, well, I guess you're pardoned too. <laughs> i mean you talk about a funny line and we all broke up everyone started laughing and it was it was such a comfort zone for nixon to talk sports oh he was God. just he was rolling he was he had he as i was walking out we packed up the cruise because we had to shoot it in a remote and there was a bar there and nixon is sitting at the bar and he goes hey roy 
come on, have a drink. And I said, Mr. President, I can't because my crew is in the truck and I got to go. Come on, have a drink with me. And he didn't have any friends, Seth. He just didn't have anyone to hang with, to talk sports. He would have loved to have talked sports all day and all night. And in that sense, and maybe the only sense, it was not political. It was just two guys talking sports. And he loved the conversation. And he loved the friendship that came with it. And that to me told me a hell of a lot about what sports can do at its best. It can bring people together. More Sports with Friends in just a moment. You know, I love hosting this show, and obviously I want as many people as possible to hear every episode. I put a lot of effort into them. The reality, though, is that podcast discovery, whether you're a podcaster or a podcast listener, is hard. That's why I've partnered with the folks at Marble. M-A-R-B-Y-L. Not like marbles in your mouth like it sounds when I'm doing my podcasts. Marble's AI identifies the five most interesting moments in a podcast episode and instantly transforms them into searchable, shareable clips called marbles. We've done close to 400 episodes of this show, and sometimes you want to hear about themes that we've done. You can search for hockey podcasts that we've done, football podcasts that we've done. If you want to hear about the paralysis situation with Eric Legrand, or the release of Brittany Griner. We've done four separate podcasts on Brittany Griner's arrest. All the amazing coverage we did of sports and COVID. You can easily make a marble out of this. It's easy to create and share marbles from anywhere inside my episodes on the Marble app. And as a listener of Sports with Friends on Marble, I think it's cool that anyone can go in and be the first to claim something that's said on the show as their own personally created marble. You can share it on Instagram, TikTok, social media, and if you're old like me, you can even put it on Facebook. You can be the first to marbleize a moment on the show, and it helps me get discovered. If you're a podcaster, join me in marbleizing your show. Just head to marble.com, that's M-A-R-B-Y-L.com to get started. And if you're a listener that doesn't have a podcast, it's a great and free way to directly support Sports with Friends to get the app. Simply create and share one marble from something said on this show that you enjoyed, not something you hated. When you subscribe to my show on Marble, you'll get access to all the latest marbles as they roll out. Marble is a free app for both iOS and Android users, so head to marble.com. That's M-A-R-B-Y-L.com, or search Marble in the app or Google Play stores. Change the way you listen to podcasts. One other uh, name that I wanted to ask you, because I put myself in your shoes at the time, and I think I would have done the same thing. OJ. Oh, oh boy. Now, I remember saying on the air when the Patriots had their incident with Aaron Hernandez, I said they should get their cap space back. And the reason is, is because even though you had signed the guy and you knew he was a volatile personality, never in the scouting report was could kill a guy. Right. And I just wonder, because you interviewed him and there was suspicion there were there were things out there and you had to couch it so that he wouldn't walk out on you and 
You, well, you, you, you're walking that. such a tightrope. Um, tell yeah. me. But, but here, here's, here, here's the thing, and it's very important to understand. My O.J. Simpson interview, which was used in O.J., that documentary called Made in America, Made in America uh, was done in 1989. The murders took place almost four and a half years later. Later. Let me say that one more word. Later. So I'm interviewing him nine, four years or so before the murders. Right. He comes on the show to talk about whatever I want to talk, but he needs to plug honey baked hams and his uh, Homewood sweets or crap, something like that. He needs to plug. We have, we always agreed you need to plug something. We'll let you plug it. Sure. Okay. He comes on the show. This was right after there was an incident on New Year's Eve where he pushed Nicole down and she pushed him back and police uh, somehow got into it and he had to do some community service or whatever it was. But we did, did not know. Did you consider ignoring it? No. Good no. for you. In fact, I, at the time, I was the only one who asked him about pushing Nicole in a domestic dispute. In fact, also, Seth, that clip was used, originally entered into the OJ trial. But they, 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 really, they dropped it. At the last minute, they decided not to use it. Okay. So I had to interview him. And I said, you know, what happened uh, on New Year's Eve? I need to talk to you about this. There was an incident with Nicole. You pushed Nicole. She pushed you back. Oh, Roy, you know how that stuff is so overblown. We had a little too much to drink. I don't know if you ever got into an argument with your wife. She pushed me. I pushed her back, and that was it. I love her. She loves me. Case closed. Okay. So what am I supposed to what do? What are you supposed to do? Right. Four years Four years from now, you're going to kill somebody. I, I had to accept it, and then I had to transition into plugging his honey-baked hams. Okay. Made in America, the documentary uh, by by Mr. Edelman, who, by the way, did not ask me to do any kind of interview, just uses the clip of I'm plugging the honey baked hams after I ask you about domestic violence, juxtaposing the, the, the promo, the plug, as if I was indifferent to a double homicide, which would happen. Let me say again, four years later. Later, it didn't happen that week of the show, but the response I got after OJ Made in America ran was, and I'm not exaggerating, Seth, Roy Firestone enabled a double murderer, okay? Roy, I had one on Twitter say, I hope you have daughters who are, oh raped, and and are raped and murdered so you will know what domestic oh violence is. As if I was trying to somehow cover up something that happened four years after that interview. I took so much heat. I lost some work because of it. People were afraid. And I never, I even asked ESPN, could I come on on some show and say, can I give some context? Or, or put into context. Put it to some con historical context in chronology. I wish I knew you then. I would have put you on the podcast. Right and, and I and I tell you, I was on, I was on Callan Coward's show and they were still um, pretty hard on me. I said, well, he goes, Colin Coward says, well, you know, you called him juice. I said, Colin, everybody juice. I said, that doesn't mean I'm enabling a double murder four years later. And you, you've never had people who had to plug some stupid product that they were coming on to talk about. I took such heat for that. And I learned about how unfair social media can become 
That's why I got off Twitter. That's why I'm only on Facebook now. I, I, because I like to write, I write every day, but I really learned some things about how vicious and how un, un, unfair um, some of the social media can become. And it becomes like a catastrophic wave of negativity to you. And, you know, I'm sure there are people who, who to this day say, you know, we're not going to use Roy Firestone. He's the guy who enabled OJ, which is just BS. That's, that's asinine. It was four years later. Oh, it, it was. But there are people who think that that interview that I did was after the murders. It's ridiculous. When it happened, I remember telling my then wife, um, still on good terms, but we're no longer married. Remember when he went to a dinner with OJ and Nicole at the Century Plaza for a sports night and he she was kicking him under the table? She goes, yes. I said, they found her dead in her house. And my wife said, and then my then wife said, I bet you he did it. I'll never wow. forget. That. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. All right. Uh, before we call this a day, and please, sir, will you come back? There is so oh, much it. left it. on the table. <laughs> no, I've never really, I've never really told that whole OJ story, and to this day, it sticks out in my craw because there's there's really no way you can undo it. When people get it in their mind, what they think happened, right. you can't change their mind. That's, That's their what's truth. going on in uh, in Israel right now. People That's just right. get in their mind factual right. inaccuracies that's right and that's, that's right. and that's what's happening you interviewed elton john yep tell me you know musical heroes i i remember i i didn't interview him but i met prince uh and i worked with prince for for a year wow um, and that, that was it was a great experience i love i loved doing it and talking to him off the off air was huge basketball more, guy was really? more rewarding. Yeah, yeah. He was more rewarding than if I had had him on a show uh, yeah. at, at any time. However, you interviewed Elton John. What was that? Yeah. Like? Well, I was doing a fundraiser with Andre Agassi's foundation, and Elton was the performer. And he points at me at a press conference. He goes, I need to talk to you. And I, 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 I didn't, he didn't, I don't even think he John. knew, I don't think he knew my name really. He just knew the show. Right. Okay. So I said, would you talk to me on camera? He goes, oh, that's what I want. I want to talk to you on camera about something. I said, okay. So I start to ask him about, you know, Crocodile Rock or Rocket right, right. Band or any number of things. And he goes, I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about the Atlanta Braves. I'm like, excuse me? He goes, yes. You know, I came to Atlanta in 1978 and I watched the turn of the broadcast for the Braves on Superstation, and I became a baseball fan, and I know more about the Braves. You could ask me any question you want. So he starts going off on guys at Richmond and Raphael Forcal should be in the third slot, and Chipper Jones at third base, and he's really a natural outfielder. It sounded like John Sherholtz was talking to me, right? <laughs> John, he's great going guy, John Sherholtz. He's going on and on about the Braves. And sure enough, I found out many years later, Bobby Cox was his friend. Sherholtz was his friend. Chipper Jones was his friend. I said, Elton, I have to say, this is stunning to me. He goes, well, no one ever talks sports with me. And you're the only guy I want to talk sports with. And he goes, you know, I want to confess something to you. This is on camera. He goes, when I'm doing a concert and the Braves are in the playoffs, 
I have the game in my ear while I'm doing the show. I said, <laughs> I said, what? He goes, I put it down low so I can hear myself sing. He says, but I need to know what the scores are and I need to know who's up. And during the show, if the Braves win, he says, I'll do an extra 10 or 15 minutes. Oh. But if they lose, he I'll shit, shut that goddamn thing down and I'll cut out of the damn show. That's the kind of baseball fan he was. Wow. He, I, I had never believed what I, oh I didn't even oh get a question. I got maybe one question about music in the whole interview. Everything was about the Braves, about <laughs> Philadelphia Freedom World Team Tennis. Sure. He only wanted to talk about People Billie don't Jean. know that song, Philadelphia Freedom, is about a tennis team owned exactly. by Billie Jean King. Exactly right. And he was always interested in talking sports. Years later, I saw tremendous. him in another that event. That is tremendous. And he motions me over. And I said, "I re he goes, I remember you. He says, but I want to ask you a question. Didn't I tell you Rafael Fercal was the right place in number <laughs> Didn't I tell you that? He's I said, waiting oh, to tell you that it was like all he could think of Raphael for Cal. I mean, he knew more about the Richmond Braves yeah. than, and than most people it, he, he has this command when he gets passionate about stuff, he's a collector of information and he loved the Atlanta Braves. And at the end of the interview, uh, slightly off color, but here we go. I, he goes, you know, I love all the Braves. I love Sherholtz. I love Chippa. I love Bobby's Cox. I mean, Bobby Cox. <laughs> and he goes, if you use that, you have to put that in context now. <laughs> that was so funny. Bobby's Cox. That's so funny. <laughs> all right. Um, you've already promised to come back on the show. So this is not yes. the last question. This is just the last question for now. Okay. Uh, they say you want to go out with a bang. You interviewed Muhammad Ali. Many times, but I would say the first interview I did was 21 years old in Miami. I have a photo of it that I always use. I do a live show, by the way. I tell all my stories and music, and I sing, and I do all kinds of stuff. I do it, I've do i done it for corporate for years. So if anyone's listening and wants to bring me in, I'm ready to go. Um, I knew Ali since I was probably 15 years old because he trained in Miami Beach, where I'm from originally, the Fifth Street Gym, the famous Fifth Street Gym. So my first interview is in 1975 after the thrill in Manila. That week, we decided to follow him around with cameras just to tell the, what's what's a day in the life of the champ. Well, on this particular night, we go to a nursing home in South Beach, Florida, and Ali was going to go there. And we're filming this. We mic'd him up. And it's not just a photo sh shoot. It was not just a photo op. He really loved the elderly and little kids. He always got a kick out of the elderly and little kids. So we go to this room and he had just won the fight with Frazier, 75. And he goes into this room and there's probably a hundred elderly people in their nineties. And well, a couple of people, 104, a couple of hundred and twos. I'm so great. I'm the fastest. What's my name? <laughs> elderly people have no idea who this guy is. And finally an old lady goes, aren't you clay? And I'm going, Oh God. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> All right. So here we go. So he, like that he, scene in coming to America. Right, 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 right. I'm a column clear. That's right. So we go to another room and he starts doing his Ali thing. I'm so far. Where are the greatest? I'm the greatest of all time. And there's no one in the room except there's an old black man in a wheelchair. And the old black man, he walks up to this old black man and he says, Hey, old man, do you know who I am? 
man doesn't respond. And then he says it again. Come on, old man, what's my name? Old man had cataracts on his eyes. He was very, very old, probably about 98 years old in a wheelchair. Ali realizes there's no reaction. So he starts to walk out with his entourage. But as he's walking out, I'm looking at this old man and I'm with my camera crews. I'm seeing this. He suddenly, like something, a light bulb goes off on his head. Wow. And the old man turns to the wheelchair. He goes, hey, hey, come over here, brother. And Ali goes, what'd you say? And I said, come over here. What you want to say, old man? And the old man goes, you know, I'm 98 years old. Everybody in my family is dead. Everybody I ever loved is gone. But all I ever want to do is to meet the champ. And to meet the champ is the greatest thing that ever happened in my and This man hadn't spoken in weeks, by the way. Suddenly he's going off. Like suddenly he, his mind is clicking. He goes, I waited my whole life to meet you. You are the greatest of all time. And I love you because you're the champ. And now everyone's crying, right? And so Ali goes, Ben bends down. He goes, now tell everybody in this room, what is my name? And the old man looked up and he said, Joe Lewis. <laughs> now, now here's, here's, the, here's the beautiful thing, Seth. This is the beautiful thing. Everybody starts laughing. And then all of a sudden the entourage said, oh my God, he's going to, Ali's going to be embarrassed. So they start correcting the old man. Hey, old man, that ain't no Joe. And Ali stopped them. He stopped them. And the old man is sitting there in the corner. And Ali says to his entourage, don't you ever correct an old man, especially an old man that tried to live his life and feed, put food on the table for his babies. And all you want to do is correct it. Don't you ever correct an old man. You said that man just said his dream came true. Don't you ever take a man's dream away. Wow. He said the only champ that ever mattered to him was Joe Lewis. Well, guess what? He just met the Joe champ, Lewis. Joe Lewis. And I thought about that. It was a symbolic moment for me because it said something about what Ali represented to people. And that is to uplift people. He uplifted people in small and big ways. And that may have been a small way, but I have thought, to this day, and in this climate that we're in in this world right now, we could do really well if we would learn to uplift each other. Ali did it. He did it almost on a daily basis. He lit up a room. He made people feel special. He, he made people feel beautiful about who they were. And what he was doing there with that old man was to uplift somebody in a small way, but a vital way. I never forgot that, Seth. And that's why I still believe that's what made Ali the greatest of all time. That's an amazing story. Wow. Well, I do know this. I wondered what it would be like interviewing a guy who interviews people for a living. <laughs> all I can say to you is this was easily the easiest podcast I've put together. Well, I love I love talking, as you can tell, much to the chagrin of many of my friends and family. But <laughs> I've had a hell of a ride. And I'm still doing stuff, but you know, I had the I had the best run. I'm the most grateful guy. Every dream I ever had came true. I'm also a live performer. I performed in Las Vegas. That's another world entirely. I had Jerry Lewis send me an opening night telegram at my shows. Uh, I've had Gail Sayers come opening night with Lou Rawls. So I mean, other people have had better careers, I'm sure, more 
but maybe not as quite as diverse. But a most important thing is there's never been anybody more grateful for what he, what he was able to do in this in this business. I I'm humbled by it. I'm super grateful for it. And I thank you for having me on. And all I can say is I was an admirer from afar, but uh, I'm so thrilled to, to connect with you. And, and to uh, You're very good at what you do anyway, because I, I listened to you for many years, the baseball channel, you and Casey and some other people. And uh, I was I was a fan. Who knew, I, I'm a, who knew then? Yeah. yeah, terrific. Continued good health, and uh, we'll talk again real soon. Well, I hope I get good health because his voice is, is shot, but I have to... Anyway, thanks for having me. The great Roy Firestone. Thank you so much for your support of this podcast. Please leave a rating and a review. Five stars, please. We'll see you next week right here on Sports with Friends. If you want me to stay, I'll be around today to be available for you to see. I'm about to go and then you'll know for me to stay I got to be me You'll never be in doubt That's what it's all about You can't take me for granted and smile Come on, please, I'm gone Forget reaching me by phone Because I promise I'll be gone for a while When you see that you have been the kind of person that you really are now.